The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Now, one of the other hats that I wear is uh, working with an organisation called Questioning Christianity. Uh, our heartbeat is to help connect the Christian story to life's deepest questions. And in addition to speaking to students in schools and universities, we also create a ton of free digital content, trying to reach young people in the marketplace of ideas on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and the dreaded world of TikTok uh, and all those sorts of things. So if, uh, if you've got questions, maybe for yourself or you're trying to help answer questions that your friends and family are asking, please do jump on to questioningchristianity.com or track down any of our digital channels. And uh, there's just a ton of hopefully helpful free content there for you. But back in 2008, right before the global financial crisis, in fact, very good timing, the famed artist Damien Hirst, he put a new sculpture of his out on the market. And it sold for a record price. In fact, the highest price of any sculpture for a living artist, 10.5 million pounds. That's a lot of money. The piece itself, though, was called the Golden Cuff. This is a photograph of the front side of this giant sculpture, which is enclosed in this huge gold-plated glass case. You can walk right around it as it was then put on show. And he makes no bones about it. It's called the Golden Calf. And it's something of an opportunity for a biblically illiterate generation to ponder the meaning of this ancient story. What on earth is meant by this image. Now, I want to start maybe with a question. I wonder if you've ever made a sacred promise that you've failed to keep. Have you ever made a sacred promise that you have failed to keep? Think of the aftermath of the emotions that you felt, the inner turmoil, the questions, what would this mean? The way it reflects back on who you really are, the window into your soul, everything that's wrapped up on that, because today's story, it spotlights that experience as we transport ourselves back to the foot of Mount Sinai for the infamous story of the golden calf. Now, if you're a newcomer here to Life Center, kind of the standard MO or practice of the church is to wander through books of the Bible, to learn the whole counsel of God and how it speaks to our life today. And we're in the series in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, what's known for the Jewish people as part of the Torah, the law. And I want to give you something of a warning. As you've no doubt encountered, if you've been here for a while, some of these stories can be confusing and some of them can be awfully confronting. And they raise an entire series of questions that sadly we're not going to have a chance to wrestle through all of them today. But I am convinced that as God's word, that in this story, there is a point of revelation. And like Jacob, wrestling with God, if we wrestle with this story long enough and sit in it, there will be a blessing for us, even if it comes with something of a point of pain. So let's read from Exodus chapter 32. We'll read verses 1 to 20 together. It says, Then, when the people of God saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, who knows what has happened to him? Aaron answered them, Well, take off your gold earrings, that of your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Maybe a little bit of a plug for male jewelry there. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he took what they handed them, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
When Adam, Adam, sorry, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early. They sacrificed burnt offerings. They presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink. And then they got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, they've sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster upon your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented. He did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned, he went down the mountain with two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made. He burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. This is the word of the Lord. What a strange tale in the midst of the book of Exodus. Thinking back to what's transpired, Israel has already been powerfully liberated by the Lord from 400 years of brutal slavery in Egypt. They'd been miraculously led through the Red Sea. They'd been provided for materially by the Lord's hand. And Israel now stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, where the Lord had delivered to them his covenant commandments. And what was their response? They made a vow. Exodus 24 verse 7, in their own words, they promised to do everything the Lord had said. We will obey. And then just six weeks later, after a supernatural encounter with God, waiting for Moses to return from the mountain, the Israelites now blatantly break the first two commandments and they do it in spectacular fashion, taking the very gold that the Lord had given to them as the plunder of Egypt, twisting it, a good thing into a God thing, by fashioning it into a calf and worshipping a graven image. This is, in the midst of this story, an unthinkable descent 
on what should be a mountaintop spiritual experience. And then God tells Moses, who's still up the mountain, about his people's rebellion. And as one who really typifies Israel's true character, Moses wrestles with God. He steps in as a mediator. He pleads for the people that God not destroy them in his holy anger against their grievous sin. Then Moses goes down the mountain. He picks up Joshua at base camp along the way, only himself to be undone in fierce anger when he's confronted by the scene of revelry below. Moses smashes the symbols of the covenant on the ground, these sacred tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments, penned by God's own hand. Moses grinds the golden calf into dust, proving its powerlessness to stop him and mixing it with water for Israel to taste the bitter reality of their fall. And if you keep reading in this chapter, it gets more and more dark. Moses commands the Levites who stood firm in the Lord to punish evildoers with the sword before then ascending the mountain to try and re-establish the shattered covenant. The stories you'll see in future weeks, no doubt. But the strangeness of this story, it begs for commentary. It leaves us with a series of confronting and unanswered questions. How can Israel, after such a spiritual high, go so quickly get shipwrecked on their sacred promises and commit spiritual adultery? And what are we to make sense of God's threat to destroy Israel? What do we learn about the intensity of his holiness? How does that play on our modern, on our Christian ears? How can God, an eternal, omniscient, and omnisapient being, possessing all wisdom, how can he change his mind as he does after Moses' plea for mercy? And what are we to make of Moses' brutal attempt to make amends, or of God's use at the end of this chapter of a plague to make things right? Now, these are just some of the questions that on reading this text struck me, struck any thoughtful reader. And while we won't be able to speak to them all over the course of today's message, I do want to try and make some sense of this story by looking through the lens of Israel's idolatry and of Moses' mediation, along with the crimson cost of evil, which leads us, Moses uh, looking at the gospel in a window through to Jesus. So let's start with Israel's idolatry. Now, as probably many of you have, imagine you attend a wedding of a young couple, totally in love. The girl had been swept off her feet. There was a gorgeous ceremony, heartfelt vows. They head off on a romantic honeymoon. They plaster all the photos over social media. And then just a month later, as you go into the shops, you find the bride in the arms of another man making out. It's unthinkable, right? How would you make sense of the cognitive dissonance between experiencing those two things? That's a little window into the scene that's going on here. Israel currently stands in the shadow of Mount Sinai. The intense presence of God rests on top of that tower. I had an experience a few years ago being up on the Toowoomba Range just to see this insane storm in the distance of rolling thunder and lightning. It was magisterial and awe-inspiring. And that's going on just above where they're standing as God is meeting with Moses upon Mount Sinai. They'd had a powerful encounter with the supernatural time and time again on the road to get to this point. So what on earth drives them to worship the golden calf? Well, on this point, commentators disagree. Some of them note Moses' long absence, 
Perhaps the people feared that he wouldn't return. And so they need a new leader, someone who will go before them, a mediator between them and God. So fear is the motive which drives them to this spiritual adultery. Others, they note the behavior of the wild party that goes on in the presence of the golden statue with all of the insinuations of a spree of sin. And so looser restrictions, having seen a taste of what the law might bring, they wanted someone that would more baptize their inner desires. Still, others point out they didn't so much want another God as they explicitly identify this calf with the gods who brought them out of Egypt with the name Yahweh itself. So they perhaps all they wanted was maybe a more man-made, maybe a more tame and manageable version, something that they could keep inside the camp, not something so intense that they were afraid to approach it. Comfort and convenience is what drives them. But as with so many stories in the scripture, no answer to this question is immediately obvious. The motivation for Israel's idolatry, it's what we call underdetermined. It leaves us to plug in potential options. And perhaps far from being some kind of shortcoming in the story, this is actually its strength. That the mystery, the unknown reason why they're driven to this point, it actually invites us as readers to put ourselves into the script, to hold this story up as a mirror to ourselves, to reveal something that goes on in all of our hearts. Because as you track through the story of the scriptures, this is just a taste of the way in which we will see that all human hearts are prone to wander. We're all prone to idolatry. Now, every single story out there in the swirl of competing narratives in our culture, whether it's religious or secular, it tries to diagnose what's wrong with the world. If someone said, man, why is the world so messed up? I bet all of your friends and family members would give a different answer. And some people would cite, well, it's social inequality and classism and the history. That's what we need to deal with. Others would say, well, really, it's a lack of education. And if we can just get everyone in the world educated to a certain degree, using a certain kind of curriculum and certain kind of teaching, well, that's going to liberate the world. Others will say, well, actually, there's tribal preconditioning that's in us because of our evolutionary background. That's just really hard to be able to overcome. We keep falling into it. But perhaps the strongest cultural narrative right now that dominates the public conversation is one that identifies various forms of oppression as the problem. It's systemic chains. It's external constraints. It's evil people. It's hidden bigotries. We're told that if historic institutions or if social mores make you feel morally restricted, well, then the right thing to do is to cast them off or to tear them down. We're told that if a friend or a family member challenges your beliefs or how you feel about yourself, then it might be high time that you cut that person loose. Nothing and no one should hold us back from expressing who we really are. And yet we come then to the golden calf story, which exposes this diagnosis of external constraints as being far too naive. Why? Well, because Israel have been freed from their slavery. If you go back to the beginning of Exodus, they're no longer under the harsh yoke of the Egyptians. God has liberated them. He's broken those external chains. Nothing and no one holds them back from fully expressing who they are. And yet, still, without those external constraints, they fall. Without being able to blame anyone or anything else, they give in to sin. 
they commit spiritual adultery. And the diagnosis of the scriptures, far from the other secular and religious narratives, is that the problem runs far deeper. Our true need for freedom is not just for freedom from the external constraints, but a freedom from what lies within. A freedom to live out who we were created to be, apart from the damage of evil. When you track forward, Romans 1 diagnoses the problem of human nature as being a worship problem. We're created to be worshipping beings, to love God, love others, to delight in God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, because we've become damaged by evil, we've curved inwards upon ourselves. We swap out the worship of the Creator, and instead, in its place, we're tempted to put some created thing. John Calvin, the reformer, spoke of the human heart as being an idol factory because we always have to give ourselves to something and yet we reject God's rule. We put something else in his place. A story like this, as much as we think it's so archaic to believe that people would fashion these golden images and then bow down to them and devote themselves to it, we do it all the time. We all have idols. Maybe not literal golden statues, but walk into your home, If I was to spend time observing your life, if I was to tap into your thought world, for all of us, something would show up. Because an idol is just anything that's more important to us than who God really is. Any substitute that we give ourselves to, anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God, anything that you look to to give you what only God can really give. And our idols tend to look less like statues of gold and more like crypto wallets or houses or career advancements or social media followings or even the beautiful gift of kids. You see, it's not that idols are bad things. So often the worst idols are great things that we turn into a God thing. Gifts that God has given us that we give too much priority in our own hearts and thought life. And so whether we're driven by fear or pushed by desire, our idols are the things we run to for power, for approval, for comfort, or for control. And part of this story is an invitation for us to look within and say, given that God is right there, given that I turn up every week to worship him, what is it that really has my heart, my attention, my affections? Do we know what our own idols are? Now, if you want to think further on this theme, I'd highly recommend Tim Keller's helpful book, Counterfeit Gods, which helps you diagnose not just the obvious things, but the deeper roots that drive you towards it. Because the reality is, as we read with this story, idols are not harmless things. They're dangerous. Because they never ultimately satisfy. They never deliver on their promises. And they always cost you more than what's on the label. They destroy us by twisting us from within. You see, whereas doxology or true worship leads to right thinking, right feeling, and right living out of a love of God and the grace of the gospel, idolatry corrupts all of those things. It leads us away into what Romans 1 calls darkened hearts and darkened minds. And the question here is, how do we get free? Well, Moses doesn't just take the golden calf and put it to one side and say, let's just not put our attention on that. He deals with it severely. He puts it back in the fire from which it came. He grinds it down to dust, puts it in the water and makes them drink 
to get a sense that this thing will not ultimately satisfy. It is bitter to our taste. See, the fascinating thing I find about this story, the thing that is so somewhat unbelievable to me, is that the intense presence of God is within a kilometer of where they're standing. It's visible, it's audible, it's terrifying, it's awe-inspiring. It should be the thing that they're looking to and captured by. And yet, they're tempted to take the reality of who God is and to bring it down to something that is far more easy, comfortable, manageable, less demanding on who they are. The reality is, as we sit here this morning, we're not safe of that same sin. To take the reality of who God is and all of his awe-inspiring intensity, the fiery truth of the way in which he's created us to be, and instead baptize a version of Christianity that allows us to live the same comfortable lives, chasing the same idols as our secular friends and neighbors. It was once said that the greatest hour of idolatry in the West, it's not Friday or Saturday night as people go out. It's Sunday morning as people arrive to worship a God that they have created in their own image, a God they've reshaped into something easy, familiar, something more attractive than the reality of who he is. So maybe a question as a point of challenge for us. In what ways are we tempted to sanitize the true revelation of how God has made himself known? Not just through the unfolding story in Torah, in Exodus, but made himself more fully known in the teaching, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we hear his voice and his commands, when we say we will obey, do we then go and follow, actually build our lives on that rock? Or instead, do we bring Jesus down, reshape his teaching and example into something that doesn't confront us, doesn't call us to change, doesn't bring us to repentance? Do we really accept God on his own terms? From Israel's idolatry to Moses' mediation, Israel have committed a grievous sin. This is not a word that is popular in our modern parlance in a secular culture. And the Bible gives a whole range of definitions from sin, from missing the mark or not living up to what we were created to be, the way of love modeled in Jesus, to transgressing a sacred boundary, taking something which is of high worth and making it profane, using it for common use or defacing it. It's moving away from the goodness of who God is to turn our back on it and so be caught in the shadow. There are various ways in which the scriptures speak of evil, but what's so fascinating about Exodus is that here in chapter 32, there are more mentions of the word sin than in the previous 31 chapters combined. This is a chapter that highlights the first great failure of the nation of Israel to live up to the calling that God had for them, to be a light to the Gentiles, to be his people, to be the womb through which Messiah would come to bless the world. It's blatant spiritual adultery. And it's so serious that at the end of this chapter, as Moses prepares to ascend the mountain on their behalf again, he says that perhaps atonement can be made. Maybe they've gone so far that there is no coming back from this point. Now, 
having broken the symbols of the covenant, symbolized by the smashing of these tablets, the people were threatening the future of their own calling. And as God recounts to Moses what they had done, he warns of destruction. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, get out of my way, be away from me, so that I may destroy them, that's not the picture of God that easily comes to mind. That's not a comfortable picture of God. And yet, we're confronted here with the true reality of the holiness of God. That God's holy anger burns against evil. And so it should. The great public theologian Miroslav Volf talks about a revolution in his own thinking, from being able to countenance the concept of divine violence, of a God who judges and brings an end to evil, but then himself experiencing the brutal violence in the Balkan turmoil, then coming to see the reality of human evil lived out and decrying that there would be no justice. He said, true love, when it sees that which it loves, being defaced, being abused, being murdered, being raped, being, having genocide committed upon it, you cannot help but be angry and want to bring evil to an end. That God's anger is not opposed to his love, is the expression of his love for the good of his world, for his creation. How long, O oh Lord, then, will he restrain this anger? We're told that the wages of sin is death. And so, so we read this as confronting as it is to us, God would be justified to destroy them. As any of us sin, God is justified to bring upon us this forfeiture of the gift of life that he gave to us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But this story is in fact a window into the heart of God. Remember, as we go back to these early parts of the book, we are seeing the reality of who God is unfold clearer and clearer, adding to our understanding of the true nature of God. As the people are wrestling with this here, God allows himself to be entreated. He's okay for Moses to push back. And so Moses steps in in this place of a mediator. He seeks some reconciliation between God and his people. And how does he do it? Well, he reminds God of who he is. Not that God has forgotten, but it's an invitation for Moses to step into this role, to understand what it means to be a priest towards creation, to represent God to people and people to God. And so Moses says, God, but this is who you are. And this is the promises that you've given to us. And these are your people, Israel. And what's so curious about this conversation is that the scriptures say that God changes his mind. The RSV, the KJV, that's how the translators render it. God changes his mind. In the NIV, God relented. In the KJV, God repented. But isn't God unchanging? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And isn't God sovereign and all-wise, meaning he works out everything according to the purposes of his will. He knows the best way to get from beginning to end, the most perfect path he's charted, and he's omniscient. He knows all things. What on earth is this story getting at when it says that God repented or relented or changed his mind? In fact, the Bible's even more explicit than this. In Numbers 23, 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should 
change his mind. So are we looking here at a contradiction? The natural question, how do we make sense of God changing his mind? Now, there's potentially a few things going on here. Sometimes it's helpful in the scriptures to distinguish between conditional and unconditional statements that God makes. Take, for instance, Nineveh, the warning that God's judgment will come upon this great city, Nineveh. That's the statement that comes from Jonah. And yet, they repent. And so God relents. He changes his mind based upon the response of people to the revelation, to the warning of his coming judgment. You see, the doctrine of immutability, the doctrine of God being unchanging, it means that his nature never changes, yesterday, today, and forever. You will always know what God is like. He doesn't change how he deals with us one day to the next, forgiving to those who repent one day and then actually know you're screwed. I'm just in a bad mood today. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He is consistent in who he is. He forgives those who repent. He judges those who don't. And one other feature we see going on here is what the commentators call an anthropopathism, a way that the infinite, unchanging, eternal God shows or relates to us as finite creatures in a way that we can understand, in a way that opens us up to engage, to relate to him. He condescends to our level for the sake of genuine relationship. Now, here's the thing. What is Moses doing? Does he, in being a mediator, actually change the outcome? If Moses did nothing, if he said, fair enough, would God have destroyed all of Israel and started again with Moses, perhaps Joshua, perhaps the Levites? These are confronting questions. At best, the story invites us to consider that what Moses does in standing in the gap between sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God, it actually turns God's anger away. It changes what would have been the outcome. And this isn't the only place we see this thing playing out. Think Abraham arguing over what's going to happen to the cities on the plain. What if there are 50 righteous persons? What about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? If I be so bold, God won't destroy it, even there be one in the city. You see, we're told in the book of James that the prayer of a righteous person affects much. That the way in which a sovereign, all-wise, omniscient being relates to us is to invite us to participate in what plays out here on planet Earth so that no one is warranted to say that because God is sovereign, what I do doesn't matter. We are active agents in God's plan. He does not need us, and yet he chooses to work through us. And so God, in this scenario, draws Moses to understand his role in the future of Israel as a priest towards God, helping to prepare the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, helping to prepare the people of God, the church, a holy nation of royal priesthood to serve our role in standing between a fallen creation and a holy God, to represent people to God and God to people. I want to tell you today that your prayers matter. God doesn't just ordain the ends, but the means. 
And he invites you as an agent in his creation to have an active role in prayer, in petition, in advocacy, to see his purposes play out in the world, to allow his revelation to be made known to his people. Even as a mediator, though, in this story, there is still a cost. And it's a brutal one. As you read on in the story, I was confronted. Moses calls out from the people, who here stood with me? And all the Levites come out from the people as though they didn't engage in the same revelry, this pagan worship. And then he says, take up a sword, wander through the camp. Everyone slay their neighbor and their brother and then return to me. There's 3,000 people put to the sword. And then it speaks at the end of the chapter before Moses ascends up the mountain again of God in his anger sending a plague. These are confronting images of judgment, of an attempt at a human level to bring forth justice, then at God's level to bring forth justice. And I must admit, they're not comfortable. At no point in any of the judgments in the Old Testament am I comfortable reading those texts. With people drowned in the flood, slain with the sword, destroyed by fire, they're meant to make us incredibly uncomfortable. We learn in the book of Ezekiel that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, as though he revels in bringing forth justice. He's heavy-hearted. And these are some harsh realities that we have to come to terms with, with the crimson cost of evil, even with Moses acting as a mediator here in this story. Now, the story ends waiting for hope for a restoration of the covenant. It invites us to come to deal with our own idol factory and ask the question, how can we turn outwards again? How can we make sure that rather than looking to man-made objects to put our hope, our trust in, instead to keep our eyes fixed on God, where does that go? Now, as much as it's legitimate to stay anchored in the Old Testament, to read the story chronologically, to see a developing picture of who God is as long as we can, to try and think what would it be like to learn who God is from that unique vantage point? What did Moses know of God's nature from this point? But it's also true that Exodus and all of Scripture, from Moses through to all the prophets, they point forwards to Jesus. He said so to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. He said so to the Jewish leaders in John 5. You search the scriptures, these all point to me. And we're told in the New Testament that there is one true mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And the difference in this story is as much as there is Israel's idolatry, there is all of our idolatry. But with Jesus as our mediator, the crimson cost, it's not paid by us. It's not paid by a representative number of us. The crimson cost is something that's picked up at Calvary. It's paid by Jesus. The public cost of our transgressions is answered with blood on a tree. All the way back at Calvary. I wanted to close today thinking from an ancient story to one more modern. By answering the question I opened with. Has there ever been a time where you made a sacred promise that you failed to keep. And honing in on something that I found profoundly encouraging in an encounter with Jesus as our mediator 
It's one that comes on the night before Jesus was crucified. He tells his disciples of his impending death. He tells them that they will desert him. And Peter stands up with all confidence and makes a sacred promise. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will not desert you. Even if it costs me my life, I will follow you. I wonder how you've ever made promises like that to God. Jesus, I will never commit that sin again. That was the last time, I promise. Jesus, I give you everything, my whole life, my fullest devotion. Nothing is going to turn my eyes from you. And what does Jesus say in response to Peter in Luke's gospel? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But fear not, for I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. One of the most amazing things we learn about the ongoing ministry of Jesus is in light of the failure of Peter at this point. Makes a sacred promise that then he goes and epically fails for sake of his own identity, for his safety, for his comfort, for various motives that drive him to deny the Lord three times. In one gospel account, it says at his third denial, he looks upon the court and locks eyes with Jesus. Imagine the grief as you understand the weightiness of the grievous sin that you've just committed denying Jesus. And whether we do it verbally or with our lives, so often, that's the same space we find ourselves in. What do we do when we make a sacred promise and then we fail in it? Well, Jesus tells us that even though our faithfulness there waned, he prays that our faith will not ultimately fail. Jesus acts as our mediator. As you go to the book of Hebrews, you wonder, after Jesus' death and resurrection, where did he go? Forty days, a few weeks with the disciples, giving them these revelations, teaching them about the kingdom, preparing them for their missionary task. Then he leaves. What's he doing? Hebrews tells us that he always lives to intercede for us. See, where Moses is an imperfect mediator, where his mediation doesn't completely turn away God's anger, where he himself gives in to human responses. Jesus, in his heavenly session, always lives to intercede for us. He prays that our faith may not fail. And the gift of the gospel is that God doesn't just set us free from external constraints out there. But as Jesus promises in John 8, sets us free from our true captivity to evil in here. That becoming a Christian is about being born again of the Spirit so that our nature that curves in, that is prone to wander, can begin to be prone to faithfulness. We can be reshaped, reformed, our desires changed to refocus us on Jesus. Let me close with these words from one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take it, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. We're going to gather around the Lord's table just as the symbols of the covenant were smashed on the ground of this old covenant, 
there is a new covenant that's been cut with the blood of the Lord Jesus. He gave us the bread and the wine as symbols of what now binds us to the faithfulness of God. A God who forgives our sin, a God who is faithful when we are faithless, a God who always intercedes for us, who never slumbers nor sleeps. And it's the opportunity of all people who love and worship Jesus to gather around this table, to do what Jesus commanded us, to remember him. He said of the juice, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He said of the bread, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now spread on both sides of the room, if you haven't got one already, there are just these small cups that allow you in your own time, perhaps to look inwards, to do what 1 Corinthians 11 invites us to do, to make sure we come with a worthy attitude towards the Lord's table, to bring our repentance, to expose the idols within, to ask for forgiveness, to realign our vision, not to the God that we make in our own image, but the God made known in Jesus. And to be thankful that his death and his resurrection turns God's anger away. It satisfies the wrath of God. It brings judgment down on him rather than us. So in your own time, take that. The worship band will come back up. I'll close in prayer now and, uh, and then we'll respond in worship. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.